Don't worry saying, what shall we eat, says Jesus, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. I glanced at some headlines this week, and it seems just about everything has become a crisis. So, uh, I don't know if you saw this, next year electricity prices tipped to rise 35%, if you don't mind. What does that give us? gives us an energy crisis. Inflation mixed with rising interest rates, what does that give us? A cost of living crisis. And just for some variety, what else did I find? Well, apparently, uh, we have a health crisis, a refugee crisis, an international security crisis, a climate crisis, a supply chain crisis, an employment crisis, a flood crisis. It's been a big week. I could keep going. And I haven't even mentioned the ongoing crisis, which is Australian rugby. Heavens above, there's a disaster. Now, against a backdrop like that, and despite record levels of affluence, it's sadly true that we modern Westerners have never been more worried. Now, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a social scientist, so I'm going to stay in my lane and I'll let the experts explain the situation, but I will be so bold as to venture an observation. It's interesting, I think. It's interesting how this epidemic of anxiety that's afflicting modern Westerners happens to coincide with a time where almost everybody has rejected the loving rule of our Heavenly Father. I think that's interesting. Now, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a comprehensive picture of what life will look like in his kingdom. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll have heard Jesus teaching his disciples, you've got a Heavenly Father who loves you, a Heavenly Father who cares for you, A heavenly father who listens to your prayers. So, verse 31, don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans, literally the godless ones, they run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. You have a heavenly father who loves you. So Jesus says, don't worry, cast your worries on him. So let's look at this command, do not worry, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? So three times in this passage, Jesus will command us, do not worry. And as we begin to unpack what he means by that, you'll notice that he begins verse 25 with the word, therefore. He's drawing a conclusion. And that's why we took a run up to our passage by listening again to what Jesus was teaching us last week, where Jesus reveals that our hearts are connected to what we love. Or to put that another way, our allegiance is given to that which we most treasure. And so Jesus makes us choose. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money, but gee, we give it a red hot go, don't we? Because we're different. 
like the 90% of Australian males who rate themselves above average at sport, we're different. No, we're delusional. And in our passage, Jesus fleshes out what it looks like to run after the treasure of this world. What happens when you do that? Well, you become consumed, obsessed, fixated, preoccupied, and ultimately, because remember, you're ruled over by a master. The only question is which one. You're ruled after the worries of this life when you chase after them. They are your master. Or as Jesus puts it in his famous parable of the soils, like weeds, the worries of this life will choke the life out of you. And it's in response to this frantic, obsessive worrying that Jesus says simply, don't worry. Because when you give in to worry to the point of obsession, you might pray, Father, give me my daily bread. But in truth, you live like a pagan because you don't trust the God who provides to actually give you what you've asked for. And that's why Jesus labels worry a faith issue. Did you notice that? Verse 30, you of little faith. Now, full disclosure, I'm prone to exactly the kind of worry that Jesus commands against. I got a good friend and he was kind enough to point out that I'm someone who catastrophizes. I didn't know that word. Let me tell you how this works. Catastrophizing goes like this. You make a minor mistake. Let's pick an example. You make some thoughtless, harmless, but thoughtless comment. All right, I'm not condoning it, but it happens. When you catastrophize, what do you do? You replay the mistake over and over and over in your mind. And every time you replay it, guess what? The problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, your dumb comment which no one remembers, by the way, your dumb comment has spiralled to the point where you're Googling house prices in Guatemala because you simply have to start again with a new identity. It's completely bonkers. How many of the disasters I've worried about in advance have actually happened? A very small number. And of the disasters that I did worry about in advance, how many of them were as bad as I had feared? Again, a very small number. And despite it all, here I am, preserved for another day, having received precisely the right amount of daily bread according to my Heavenly Father's wisdom. And so Jesus is proven right yet again. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? No, you can't, but you can certainly shorten it. So we have the command, do not worry, but what reason does Jesus give? What's the reason for the command? Why should disciples give up this pointless practice of obsessive over concern. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air, says Jesus. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. Oh, sure, they make provisions, but nothing like the sophisticated agricultural practices we have. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. There's the observation. Look, says Jesus, now his conclusion. Are you not much more valuable than they? There's a big difference between appropriate 
godly concern for the needs of this life and the obsessive, ungodly, untrusting preoccupation of obsessive worry and Jesus shows us the difference. Look at the birds. Every day they wake up totally dependent on God, just like you. And what do they do? They get up and they work. Now, if you come to my place on any given day, typically you'll find four humans, two dogs, one cat, and about ten birds living in the roof. Uninvited, I might add. Now, what do they do? They get up early and they scratch on the tin roof. They squawk and they chirp and they get busy with the needs of the day. It's very annoying, I can assure you. Birds are concerned for their needs, aren't they? I take it that's why they get up early. But they're not worried for the simple reason, says Jesus, your heavenly Father feeds them. I mean, think of it. Have you ever seen a bird with its head and its wing thinking, strike? How am I going to feed this family today? Much less pay for their school fees. That's not their instinct, is it? They get to work. But here's Jesus' point. Without even realising it, these birds entrust themselves to the surrounding environment provided by, guess who? Your heavenly Father, says Jesus. It's similar with the flowers and the grass. Why do you worry about clothes? See, again, this is so important to notice. Jesus is getting us to observe. Look at the birds. See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labour or spin. I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. You've got a heavenly father who cares for you. And so, cast your cares on him, says Jesus. But what of the millions who starve? Why doesn't God provide for them? It's a good question. And I'm wary of giving simplistic answers to complex questions. I could say, for example, well... The world is suffering under the effects of sin and evil and famine is one symptom of that brokenness. Now, a statement like that would be true, it would be accurate so far as it goes, but it's not very satisfactory, really, is it? And I wonder, before we put God in the witness box and cross-examine him for his alleged failure to keep his word... I wonder if we might want to prepare for that moment by asking ourselves a couple of questions. For example, are people starving because the world lacks sufficient productive capacity? I think that would be a hard case to mount. Or have the resources generously provided by our Heavenly Father become concentrated in the hands of a few? Now, while you're thinking about your answers to those questions... I'll gently remind you what Jesus assumes of his disciples at the beginning of chapter 6. Do you remember? When you give to the needy. Generosity towards the needy is a basic reflex of discipleship. That's Jesus' assumption. When you give to the needy. And as it happens, when you glance across church history, you find that one of God's main strategies 
for addressing the needy comes through the generosity of his people. I mean, who started hospitals? Who invented palliative care for the dying? Who funds schools in disadvantaged areas at their own cost? It's the crazy Christians who pray, give us today our daily bread. Our daily bread. It's not my daily bread. It's our daily bread. So what could this look like in practice? If we learnt to trust the God who provides this worry-free reliance on the continued provision of our generous Heavenly Father according to, and this is important, according to his opinion of what our daily bread ought to look like. What might it look like? Well, back in the 4th century, that's why it's important to study history, there was an emperor, a Roman emperor called Julian. Now, it was fashionable for Roman emperors to persecute Christians. There's nothing new about that. The only trouble was Julian wasn't doing a very good job of it. And the Christians were frustrating him. But what really bugged him was the way that Christians made the Romans look bad. How so? Julian says, we, that is the Romans, we ought to be ashamed because The godless Galileans, by which he means the Christians, those godless Galileans feed not only themselves, but our people as well. Talk about loving your enemy. But he goes on, whereas our people, the Romans, receive no assistance whatsoever from us. The Christians made the Romans look bad. It's a classic example. One of many where pagans are completely stumped by this Christ-like, Jesus-shaped generosity. Now, the only explanation for their behaviour that makes any sense is that these disciples have learned to reject worry, partly because it doesn't work, but mostly because they've learned to trust their Heavenly Father who cares even for the grass If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Of course he will. Now, I'd love to say the honourable behaviour of these Christians was sufficient to so move Julian that he'd end the persecution, but he didn't. And like the grass of the field, many of these Christians would be literally thrown to the flames. And through it all, our Father provided for these disciples their daily bread right to the end for exactly as many days as he planned for them to live such that through their lives, and perhaps even more so in their deaths, Jesus would be honoured even among the pagans. I'm reminded of that line from Romans 8. I'm sure many of you will know it. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Was it for birds that God gave up his son? 
To what flower did God ever say, you are my treasured possession? And so what can we say? Well, we have to conclude, if while we were still sinners, God gave his son for our forgiveness, how much more can we trust him with the worries of this life? So Jesus says, don't worry, but what's his positive alternative? Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I don't know if you've realised it yet throughout this Sermon on the Mount, but discipleship is extreme. It's fanatical, actually, because Jesus leaves absolutely zero room for comfortable Christianity. That's not a category that's open to us. Because remember, you serve a master, the only question is which one? To seek God's kingdom first means submitting yourself to heaven's king. And you do that in the first instance by asking his forgiveness. I trust you've done that. A disciple will put Jesus in control of their priorities. How am I going to use my time? How will I direct my money? How will I use my talents? A disciple will put Jesus in charge of their moral choices too, allowing him to rule over my behaviour, to reorient my desires and to reorder what I love. And by the way, if you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, this is exactly what you've been asking God to do. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. To be a disciple who seeks the kingdom is to be one who surrenders in total to the Lord Jesus, your king. Do this, says Jesus, and all these things will be given to you as well. Food, clothing, the whole bit, your daily bread, and so much more. In a world that's rushing from crisis to crisis, I reckon one of the most striking ways we can showcase Jesus' love is to be settled and to be calm. Experiencing burdens and trials just like everybody else, of course. But with that rare confidence that comes, knowing that the good shepherd walks with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. the one who cares even for the lesser of creation, the birds, the flowers, the grass. So don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after these things. You're not pagans, you're disciples. And so your heavenly father knows that you need them. You have a heavenly father who loves you Heavenly Father who cares for you and a Heavenly Father who is concerned to hear your prayers. May we put our trust in him this week.